0: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us in the latest episode of our podcast series on navigating the low oil price environment. My name is Susan Field, and I'm a senior associate in Herbert Smith Freehills International Arbitration Group in London. Hi, everyone.
1: My name is Irina Kentiava, and I'm an off-counsel in our energy team based in Singapore. Hi, Irina. Hi,
0: Susan. Today, we're going to talk about decommissioning obligations and more specifically, the impact of current low oil prices on decommissioning. Now, many of our clients and listeners will be familiar with decommissioning. It is, of course, the process of removing and disposing of production facilities and installations at the end of field life. And that process, including the planning, budgeting and preparation, begins long before production eases and involves substantial costs, which can be difficult to value for various reasons, including changing costs, evolving technology and availability. Now, decommissioning was uh, obviously already a hot topic before the oil price crash, with an increasing number of assets around the world expected to enter decommissioning in the coming years. But today we're going to talk about how the low oil prices that we've been seeing have amplified some of the challenges faced by operators in respect um, of their decommissioning liabilities, and also how that might drive changes in regulation. So, Irina, what do you think decommissioning looks like in the next decade?
1: That's a very interesting question, Susan. I think the decommissioning um, space is going to grow um, significantly in the next 10 years or so. There are a lot of assets around the world that are reaching the end of their uh, useful life phase. And therefore, we can expect to see a huge decommissioning wave coming Um, We've seen numbers which suggest that the global offshore decommissioning market is going to grow by about uh, 2 billion during the period of 2020-2024 and the year-on-year growth at about 6% during that period. Uh, We've also seen reports that suggest that decommissioning costs will overtake capital expenditure as soon as 2025, although that might, of course, be brought forward in the current oil price environment. The decommissioning, I think, will affect different regions at varying degrees. For example, in the Gulf of Mexico, um, decommissioning is a well-developed area and it's supported by robust regulations. Over 45% of facilities have already been decommissioned there, although, of course, there is much more to come. Um, Around 100 platforms are abandoned annually in the Gulf
0: of Mexico. Um, How does it compare to the UK? Well, in the UK, um, practice is still evolving, but there is quite a developed regulatory regime in place. Around 10% of facilities have already been decommissioned, um, and we've seen figures that suggest that as many as 470 installations need to be decommissioned in the UK North Sea over the next 30 or 40 years, with the UK set to spend over £17 on decommissioning by 2029. We've also seen figures that suggest that the total cost of decommissioning UK offshore oil and gas production, transportation and processing is estimated to be around £48 billion. Pounds.
1: Those are some significant numbers. Um, and again, I think just drawing a comparison with Asia, where um, where I practice, the decommissioning industry is very much an emerging business here, and there's probably less uh, well-developed regulatory framework. Over the last... 50 years or so, less than 10% of assets have been decommissioned in the region. And there are a lot of assets that that are mature and are nearing the end of their life. We've seen reports that suggest that in Southeast Asia alone, there's around 200 offshore fields that are likely to stop producing by 2030. Now that would translate into about one and a half thousand platforms and over 7,000 wells that would need to be decommissioned. And I think given those numbers, the impact uh, that the regulations in these regions are going to have on decommissioning works can be very significant.
0: Yes, well perhaps we should talk a little about how regulation varies um, across the various regions that you, we've just mentioned. Can you comment on the regions that you're familiar with? Sure, I'm very happy
1: to. Um, I think I would preface my comments by saying that um, the UK and the Gulf of Mexico regimes um, obviously have very robust frameworks in place and have developed very substantial expertise because they have been dealing with decommissioning uh, for a considerable period of time. Um, On the other hand, in Southeast Asia, decommissioning industry is still very much in its infancy. There haven't been many assets decommissioned and the legislative framework is comparatively underdeveloped. And this can be particularly problematic in such a complex sector that does require quite strict regulation. Um, Just taking, for example, the manner in which decommissioning works have to be undertaken. Across Southeast Asia, by and large, the regimes provide for a more flexible approach. Uh, So the assets are required to be decommissioned in a manner that is acceptable to the relevant regulator, whether that's the national oil company Patronas in Malaysia or the relevant subdivision of the Ministry of Energy in um, Thailand and in Indonesia. Whilst the, this does provide the operators with the room to negotiate, it is, of course, less certain uh, once uh, the operators are preparing the decommissioning cost estimates as to what the works will look like and therefore how much they're going to cost. I understand that in the UK, there's a lot more stricter re- uh, regulations around the manner in the, of decommissioning. Is that, is that right?
0: That's right. Yes. Um, quite a contrast to the flexibility that you describe. In the UK, um, there are quite prescriptive uh, requirements and obligations, you know, down to the level of, for example, requiring removal of a structure to at least 15 feet below the mudline. So, So quite a different scenario.
1: I guess it does, though, provide... Uh for a bit of an easier estimate of costs uh, when you know the scope of works you're going to have to be carrying out. Yes. I think the other area that represents quite a stark difference between the approaches is what happens when you sell out uh, from your oil and gas asset and to what extent you can achieve a clean exit. Again, generally in Southeast Asia, for example, companies can offload their decommissioning liabilities when they transfer their interest to a third party. So, for example, if you are currently an operator of an oil and gas field, when you sell your interest to a purchaser and exit the block, you are no longer on the hook for decommissioning works. And against that background, we've seen an increasing trend in Southeast Asia, where larger international companies are looking to rationalise their portfolios and therefore are exiting the more mature assets. And generally, in those transactions, we're seeing an increasing role uh, being played by smaller regional players who are picking up those late-life assets. It will be an interesting question um, to see whether in the coming years those regional players will have the sufficient financial capability to cover potentially substantial decommissioning costs. And I think this is something that the UK has grappled with and has addressed in a very different
0: way. That's right. Again, in the UK, we see something much stricter. I've often heard the line you can check out anytime you like but you can never leave used and that's because there is no automatic discharge of liability on disposal of an interest. So on transfer the previous title holder becomes a reserve and retains contingent liability and there there's really no way to escape those liabilities. That's
1: a that's an interesting approach and I think uh, one that uh, obviously was adopted due to particular challenges faced to the North Sea. The other area I just wanted to uh, highlight, I think, is around how decommissioning funds are uh, built up over the course of uh, the operating life of the asset, um, and how those decommissioning costs are covered. Uh, What's the position in the UK, Susan?
0: Well, you might not be surprised to hear, again, we're looking at something quite strict. Uh, The Secretary of State has powers to demand security or to take action. Criminal sanctions exist for non-compliance with decommissioning obligations, um, GOA participants are incentivized to create and police decommissioning security arrangements. So, for example, um, by providing for quite high credit rating thresholds for guarantees and other security.
1: That's quite interesting because, again, it's, it's very different from approaches in Southeast Asia, perhaps with the exception of Thailand. So, um, in places like Malaysia and Indonesia, for example, um, over the course of the operating life uh, of an asset the operators are required to build up funds um, through what's known as abandonment CES in Malaysia or ASR fund um, in Indonesia. Uh, And typically, this involves contributing a portion of decommissioning costs into the fund. Uh, The idea being, of course, that over the course of the life, you will build up sufficient funds to cover decommissioning costs uh, once production ceases. There is, however, a bit of a question mark as to what happens if the abandoned CESS or the uh, abandoned ASR fund is insufficient to cover the decommissioning costs, because for example, because the estimates were too low and the actual decommissioning costs are higher. I think the one jurisdiction that has taken a, a more similar approach to the North Sea is Thailand, where once your decommissioning plan is approved and your scope of work and therefore your decommissioning cost estimate has been developed and approved by the government, Um, the operator is required to put up decommissioning security for the full amount of those costs. And the decommissioning security has to be in either cash or government bonds or bank guarantees. So effectively, easily convertible and easily liquid um, security that the government can then use to fund decommissioning costs. And that sounds like it's a little bit more similar to the UK regime.
0: Well, against this context, uh, we should talk about how low oil prices are affecting and going to affect decommissioning. Um, It seems to us that um, they're likely to accelerate the decommissioning wave, bringing costs forward. And of course, with that, um, all other issues associated with decommissioning and potentially disputes. Um, That's because uh, dropping oil prices are likely to bring decommissioning dates forward as mature fields are no longer considered economically viable. We know that energy companies have been cutting E&P budgets since the beginning of the pandemic um, and that we'll be seeing an increase in spending and decommissioning work. Not only will costs be brought forward, but operators are going to have to come up with liquid funding on much shorter notice than they might have anticipated. And
1: it's interesting, I think, Susan, because that bringing the decommissioning dates forward is likely to have a sort of secondary uh, impact on decommissioning costs, in that as more decommissioning work needs to be undertaken at an earlier than anticipated date, there will be a crunch in available capacity and expertise to undertake that uh, decommissioning work, and therefore the costs are likely to increase as well, which then, of course, in turn means that the operators have to come up with even more liquid funding to cover those costs.
0: That's exactly right. And the costs might have been estimated on the basis of certain assumptions that no longer hold true.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: The, the last point I'd make on, on this is that we might also see a bit of a domino effect. Um, certainly in the UK, a lot of uh, fields and platforms are quite interconnected um, and as more fields cease to operate, uh, the shared terminal pipeline and other infrastructure costs um, will go up for the remaining functioning fields. Um, and that might itself uh, trigger um, a decision that those fields are no longer economic and then trigger further decommissioning. What's well, was quite an interesting comment and uh, uh Because it's not something we tend to see in Southeast
1: Asia. Generally, in Southeast Asia, fields are developed on a standalone basis. So thankfully, it's it's hopefully not a challenge that we'll have to grapple with here, given the other challenges that the industry is facing in in this region.
0: What do you think the impact of all this is likely to be on regulation going forward?
1: It's a very interesting question. Uh, I think particularly in Southeast Asia, where the regulatory regimes are less well-developed, Uh, it'll be interesting to see whether the regulators will try to look to places like the North Sea uh, for best practice approaches, uh, in particular around things like, you know, keeping previous title holders on the hook for decommissioning works, uh, or providing more uh, regulatory uh, frameworks around how decommissioning works are to be undertaken. Um, But I think, the governments will need to tread a little bit carefully in this space. Um, and that's because in Southeast Asia, generally, oil and gas exploration and production is undertaken um, through agreements entered into with the governments, whether that's in the form of a production sharing contract or a concession. And those agreements tend to contain in them quite robust stabilisation provisions. So rapid regulatory changes can lead to disputes as the operators will seek to uh, enforce the stabilisation provisions. I I think the other point to note is, of course, that increased regulatory uh, obligations can have quite severe economic consequences for uh, oil and gas companies. And in an environment where the oil prices are, is low and a lot of the companies are already struggling uh, financially. Um, I'm not really sure whether that would, now would be the right time for those changes to come in and potentially impose further economic hardship uh, on the operators in this uh, in the sector.
0: Yes, there's the question of whether um, when companies are already in financial distress, it's the right time to introduce new obligations and regulation.
1: Absolutely. Although the governments could, of course, look at a different way of approaching it. For example, um, it would be interesting to see whether now might be the time where uh, programmes such as Ricks to Reef... Will become more popular, um, and whether the governments uh, across Southeast Asia and perhaps the UK will um, start supporting the rigs to reef program in a, in a sort of more um, welcome manner. Obviously, rigs to reef uh, programs have been very um, have been widely used in the Gulf of Mexico, where some of the existing infrastructure is effectively retained in place and turned into artificial reefs after the end of uh, the useful life. And this, this tends to recognise um, the fact that during the rigs productive years, which quite often span decades, significant marine life comes to live on the structures, and it is arguably more environmentally friendly to leave the structures in place, both because it preserves the surrounding marine life and perhaps encourages further growth, but also because it reduces the carbon footprint associated with removing the platform, towing it to shore and um, undertaking the decommissioning work.
0: Yeah, there's been a lot of debate around this approach and it'd be interesting to see if ultimately it's economic considerations that drive it through.
1: Absolutely. Um, I think the other area that we've seen, particularly in Southeast Asia, uh, coming to the fore is um, sort of increased interest in developing local hubs for decommissioning, both through um developments of scrap yards or decommissioning yards in the region to encouraging companies with their decommissioning expertise to set up business in Southeast Asia and uh, build up the local expertise. Um, and I think having that local expertise and local decommissioning yards available can potentially bring down decommissioning costs um, because A, brings just extra capacity uh, online, but also, you know, For example, having a decommissioning yard in Malaysia would mean that uh, rigs from across um, Southeast Asia can be towed there at a much shorter distance and therefore at a lower cost than towing them to North Asia or the US or or wherever the other existing capability uh, sits.
0: Well, that would certainly be a good thing.
1: Absolutely. And and it would hopefully encourage the growth of of an industry in a slightly different way in this region.
0: Well, there's no doubt that the COVID-19 pandemic has heightened what were already challenging times in the oil and gas industry. But it may be that the current low oil prices and financial pressures that we're seeing may also drive some innovation and collaboration to find ways to reduce decommissioning costs um, and, and improve things more widely. As many assets enter the end-of-life phase around the world, it will be interesting to see how governments and operators and, of course, JVs, contractors and everyone involved in the cycle respond to these challenges.
1: Absolutely. I think it's interesting times ahead for the industry uh, and it's uh, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what direction uh,
0: gets adopted. Yes. So thank you, Arena. That brings us to the end of this episode. If you'd like to discuss any of the points we've raised, then please do get in touch with me or Arena or your usual Herbert Smith Freehills contact. And if you enjoyed this, then please do listen to our other podcasts in this series on navigating the low oil price environment. Thank you very very much everyone for joining.